If you need help building your online presence with podcasts, live streams or recorded video, see how I could help at educationonfire.com forward slash media. That's educationonfire.com forward slash media. I'm delighted to announce that the National Association for Primary Education has exclusively released a video from its Primary Education Summit, Visions for the Future. This video, recorded by me, Mark Taylor, and Al Kingsley, talks about creating digital strategies for schools. This video is available for you to watch now at educationonfire.com forward slash blog, which I really hope gives you a taster of some of the amazing content that was available as part of that Primary Education Summit. That's educationonfire.com forward slash blog. Hello, my name is Mark Taylor and welcome to the Education on Fire podcast. The place for creative and inspiring learning from around the world. Listen to teachers, parents and mentors share how they are supporting children to live their best authentic life and are proving to be a guiding light to us all. Hello, welcome back to the Education on Fire podcast. Great to be back with you again. We talk a lot about how the education system could be different, how schools, colleges, universities could be different. So today I'm absolutely delighted to be chatting about the London Interdisciplinary School. In a world faced by increasingly complex challenges, it's never been more important to find new ways of learning. And this is exactly what this new university is trying to do. Now, they believe that we need young people who are more versatile, more entrepreneurial and more resilient than ever before. But as we know, the current education system is siloed and students are often forced down a singular academic path, pushing them to specialise in one area. So to bring all that together, I'm delighted to be chatting to Professor Carl Gombrich, and he's the dean of the school, and he's going to be able to, to tell us exactly how they've built it, what they're doing differently from other organisations, and really how you can get involved and find out more. So I really hope you enjoy this absolutely fascinating conversation where we're talking all about the London Interdisciplinary School. Hi, Carl. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Education on Far podcast. One of the things that we love to talk about the most is actually education looking different, partly because we think it's the beneficial for the children and, and the people involved, but I think also because we realise that it, in terms of our future going forward as a society, as a world that we want to create, it needs to look different. So this is going to be a fascinating conversation. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me, Mark. So why don't we start with exactly what is the London Interdisciplinary School and your, sort of your position within it? So we're a new university. I think that's the first thing to say. We're not a school. So you've probably heard of the London School of Economics. It's another well-known university. And we aim to be, yeah, as prestigious and successful as they are in, in, in a few decades' time. It takes a long while to set up a university. Um, so we are a new university, but we're not yet allowed to call ourselves that because we have what's called provisional degree-awarding powers. Now, we are the first university since Warwick University to get those degree-awarding powers um, at our inception from the very beginning, uh, which is sort of testament to our quality, and our academic quality and our vision and our mission. Um, but it means we have to wait a, a few years until we can call ourselves a full university. But you do get an absolutely normal degree when you graduate from London Interdisciplinary School. It's a bachelor, bachelor's degree in arts and sciences. And therein starts the tale, really. Uh, we don't believe that you should separate subjects anymore into the humanities and the sciences or social sciences. We think that all the interesting problems of the world, whether it's in climate change, migration, technology and ethics, urban issues, all those subjects require, all those areas, all those problems which, uh, which uh, we're interested in, require subjects from the arts, the social sciences and the sciences to tackle them properly. So our curriculum, at the London Interdisciplinary School is very radical. 
we don't teach subjects, we focus straight on the problem and then we say what subjects or what methods as we call them, what techniques do we need to learn to really tackle those problems. So if we're interested in say climate change you might need some physics or some chemistry to understand the science part of climate change but you are certainly going to need to understand economics and some politics, perhaps some psychology of human behavior to really understand why it's so hard to make a difference in the whole climate change debate. And that goes for everything we look at. If you're looking at technology and ethics, of course you've got the whole technical side of things, how algorithms work, uh, the nature of social media, but you've got philosophy in there, you've got law in there. And in some ways, you know, this is a return to very classical ideas of education. It's very radical in the modern world because we've got stuck in the academic subjects, which mostly were kind of invented somewhere between 100 and 300 years ago. But actually, going back further, uh, people have always been interested in solving real problems. And then they think, well, what do I need to actually tackle this problem? Is it some technique from science or something from the humanities or social sciences? I actually need to focus my attention on that problem. So our curriculum is focused entirely on real-world problems and what we call methods to tackle those problems. And those methods cut across all the sciences, all the arts and the social sciences. So we are very radical. We're very different, but we think we're very contemporary and, and I think this is a good thing, we also hark back to some really sort of classical traditions about what education should be, uh, rather than just something that's been stuck in a kind of legacy way of thinking for the last hundred years or so. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And there are a couple of things that sort of strike me, first of all. One, I think anyone who's been involved in any kind of project-based learning, especially if it's sort of earlier in their sort of school learning, will kind of really sort of jump on board with that and understand that the real benefits. Um, my second thought is, how does the the learning of this work when you're sort of starting from that the starting point that you mentioned? So if you don't have the structure of we are definitely learning X, Y and Z, but I need to know X, Y and Z, how, how does that learning get sort of go about from, from a student point of view and I guess and also from a, a university point of view? Yeah, it's a great question. It's in a way the most important question when we're thinking about the rigour and the intellectual depth and stretch of the course. So um, when we look at the problems, we take what are called disciplinary perspectives on the problem, and they are quite short courses that look at one aspect of the problem. So let's take inequality. That's the problem we look at. Uh, students would focus their interest within that area of inequality on something actually quite narrow, like what are the health inequalities among different ethnic groups in the UK with regard to mental health provision. And then they would take a, what we call a, a disciplinary perspective on that, and that might come from uh, economics or from neuroscience or something else. And they dive into that discipline, but just looking at that particular problem for quite a short period. And we teach them basically to read the literature in that area in that short period of time to get what they need from that area in order to address that problem, tackle that problem. Now, underpinning all that, that might sound a big ask. In some sense, it is a big ask. But, but underpinning all that, the reason we're confident that students can do that in the end is that on the method side of the course, we teach them some pretty difficult stuff. So we'll teach them data science, how to read a paper in science which uses data, how to check they believe the conclusions of that paper, and so on. In the social sciences, we might teach them survey design, how to run a focus group, various other qualitative methods, which mean if they dive into, say, the literature of anthropology or sociology, they can also understand the methods behind the research they're looking at. And so they can critique that research and say, yeah, this is good 
back up good evidence for the sort of thing I need to do to tackle my problem. So it takes time. It It's kind of you're doing several things at once, which then come together through a kind of lens at the end of each year in, in an individual project and even more at the end of three years. So it doesn't stack up quite as linearly as a usual single honours degree. But again, we think that's a good thing. We think that reflects the modern world where very little of the modern world is linear, one thing after another, and you know what's going to happen next. So students do have to be a bit patient because they're learning these different methods alongside the problems. But then at various points in their degree, they get a chance to bring together those methods, synthesize it, we call it, and they use the different methods then to tackle those problems. So it takes time. You might have to spend several uh, courses doing some data science, some social science methods, perhaps even some artistic methods, how to make great campaign videos or something like that. But then once you've got the different methods that you're interested in, you use those to focus on the problem that you're interested in. So I guess the short answer is, you have to do some pretty difficult stuff in the methods, but once you have that under your belt, we are confident, and we see it in our students, they can dive into the literature of a particular subject they need in order to understand how to use that to address the problem they're interested in. And how do you find the constraints of the system compared to what you're trying to achieve? And by that, I'm sort of thinking, you know, like I said, it might be an honours, um, bachelor's degree or master's or, or whatever it is that you're gonna be offering. But did you think about having something completely different or because we are still part of an education system that still needs a certain type of qualification, you kind of had to sort of do the best of both worlds, as it were? Yeah, it's a very, very good question, very big question for us. Like, did, did we join the system in order to change it? By that, I mean the higher education system. Or do we just stay outside the system, which in a sense would be easier, but you have less impact in terms of systemic change. And in the end, we chose to become a very normal university in many sense. We're highly regulated. We offer bachelor's and master's degree programs. We have a structure which is very similar to most universities in terms of credits, assessment, and so on. As I've said, our curriculum is very radical, very different. Uh, and therefore, in fact, some of our assessments are very uh, varied, a very rich range of assessments students do with us. But in many ways, we look and feel like a conventional university. So we are, in a sense, straddling two things. We want to be recognized as a, as a normal university because we believe in the undergraduate experience over three years, we think three or sometimes four years is a, is a good length of time for people to really shift in their understanding of the world and themselves. So they need that immersion. They need that student experience with other students. They need to have time to talk to teachers. But we also want to be very different in the way we think about what students study, how they study them, and the purpose, really, of what they're studying. So, yeah, it's a, it's a great question because it teases out the challenges we have. We want sixth formers to think differently about what they're going on to do next. We believe that thousands of students would love this sort of education and not really being given the opportunity or even having eyes on this as a possibility, and that's a great shame for many thousands of students. But we also believe that, you know, when the output that we produce for society really uh, will be very good uh, in terms of what the graduates will know and what they'll be able to do. And I guess like I say if the if the system itself is too radical all those people that would jump in in, in, in terms of the structure you've got now will be thinking yeah I know that but all everything I've been told up until this point 
sort of gears towards I need to have a um, uh, an honours degree or I need to have a master's or, or my career is based on underpinned on these things and, and so yeah you can completely see how that would yeah we're trying to work. square that circle in a way exactly that we're saying yes we recognise you still do need honours degrees in the, in, in the current system that's what most employers are still looking for but you do not need the old fashioned honours degrees that people <laughs> have been doling out for a hundred or so years um, and you sort of mentioned there in terms of sick formers and things. Tell us sort of how you're working with schools, how you're sort of what, how you're supporting them first of all, and how that sort of getting that message into as many people as possible. Yes, yeah, so we have a very active schools team who do brilliant work. We had an event here actually just last um, last week. I can't remember which day of the week it was, maybe Thursday, where we had uh, many uh, sixth formers from mostly from London, but not all, who'd been working on an interdisciplinary project of their interest. So we had some fantastic projects. We had. Uh, a bunch of lads did uh, gender equality in the Middle East. Uh, really interesting. They were talking about men being more involved in in uh, women's uh, issues in the Middle East. I thought it was great. We had uh, a team of young women who'd done COVID health inequalities uh, related to ethnic groups in the UK. That was a great project I saw. So, yeah, basically our schools team do a range of things. We, we go to schools to talk about what this degree is and where it can lead to. That's very important that... School students realise this is a, a, an excellent passport, an excellent ticket to a very wide range of fantastic graduate jobs, whether that's in finance, um, in consultancy, in government, with, with NGOs, in the tech sectors. All those things are things our graduates will do. Marketing, all that, branding, basically all the jobs graduates do, other things our, our, own, our own graduates would do. Uh, but we also run more kind of extended educational programmes. So our schools team will go into schools work with you maybe for half a day, sometimes even a day, on these types of projects where they get students to think about problems that they're really interested in and then think about the disciplines which actually pertain to that to that problem and then think how they go about getting that, that kind of knowledge. So it's kind of a mini, tiny slice of what our students will do here, which um, is challenging to deliver in a day, but I think students see immediately that that's a thing, right? If you want to talk about migration... You've got to talk about geopolitics, but also law, also you know sometimes psychology if you're dealing with very traumatized people, uh, cultural issues which might come out of geography or, or social studies. So students get straight away that real problems are interdisciplinary, and then there's a journey for them and for us to help them understand that now there's a degree where they can actually think <laughs> more like that, you know. And it's a good thing. It's not like you're just you know you're you're, you're leaving. Uh, it's not like you're not becoming a specialist because you're doing a very narrow thing, uh, which some of your friends are doing. You're actually becoming a specialist in particular problem areas, which is far more relevant to the world and your future career than doing just one subject. And also you're becoming an expert in you and your learning and where you can put your energies. And that just sets you up for life then, doesn't well, it? Well, totally. I mean, that's a harder sell, to be honest, because uh, maybe it's our culture, maybe it's young people or the parents, whatever, still very fixated on, you know, what job can I get at the end of this? But as you've kind of hinted there, the modern world actually requires at least as much you to know what you're about so you can then pursue it as to have some kind of um, quite abstract or old-fashioned skill set. Um, basically, if you're on LinkedIn and you're doing good stuff and you apply for jobs, you can get jobs that way. Uh, but as you say, you have to know what you're interested in and then you have to pursue that by getting some relevant experience and sort of qualifications that show that that is genuinely your interest. And in terms of your, your staff and the people working with you, 
Is it a kind of a different mindset across the board? Is it a question of people working with you going, oh, we knew there was a way that it could be different and I'm really sort of so delighted that I'm able to be part of this? Or what's that sort of experience like? Um, yeah, so on the faculty side, yes, I'd say that's true. Faculty are the, the teachers, the academics here. Um, they all come from very interdisciplinary backgrounds themselves. Typically, they might have started with a humanities degree in something like English, then they've done a master's in social sciences, which might be psychology or sociology, and maybe a PhD then in the sciences, or they've gone the other way. So yes, they have people who see the world in the round, I would say, very broadly. They're interested in different perspectives on the world. Um, that's my side of things, the teaching team. And then the whole team, the wider team, if that's in the schools team or, or marketing, they all sense this way in which education is quite stuck, to be honest. I mean, when you think how much the world has changed in the last 20 years, how we spend our time, look at us now talking to each other online, doing some podcasts. I mean, that just wasn't a thing in the late 90s, you know. Um, that's not that long ago, 20-something years ago. And, of course, all the jobs are completely different in job title and in what people actually do than 20 years ago. I, I caught up with an ex-student of mine on Friday, now 27, not that much older than people at school, who's been working the product manager, product marketing space for about five years now. Now, that those two jobs are things I think most school kids probably never heard of. And yet they're absolutely huge in anything which uses tech, which is virtually anything, right? So you've got these huge areas of work now, graduate work, which are barely known, literally not talked about at school. We still think, you know, I'm going to be either a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, a nurse, or a train driver. It's kind of, honestly, sort of Janet and John levels of understanding of what the actual graduate workspace is like. And um, so, yeah, uh, I think, um, sorry, I've lost my train of thought there, <laughs> there, but yeah, um, I think, you know, it, it's really important that, that school students uh, realize that, um, the world after graduation is is not the same as their parents' generation, and they need to get a much broader, wider set of skills, which they can then apply in in areas which interest them. And I guess that's when you know the idea of entrepreneurship and having people that realise that it's not a job for life anymore necessarily, and you don't want it to be because you want to be sort of moving around and utilising your skills. And I think more and more, certainly from an AI perspective, we're realising that it's so much more about your relationships and how you work as part of a team and what you're able to sort of to set up, as it were, and then sort of let the hard work be done by, by AI and, and sort of understand how that works. And it's very new, but it seems like it's something which I think people are whether they like it or not, they're going to have to grasp if they're going to be successful. Yeah, I was just reading an H, a report from the HR industry just this weekend on, on AI, and there's two areas it seems to be impacting. One is in recruitment. They're using it to recruit people. And very interestingly, they are um, less and less interested in your degree classification. That's how well you do at your undergraduate degree. People, they're dropping the requirements from first to two ones, even to two twos. And that tells you something. It tells you that university grades are not always that important in the modern workplace, which is interesting. They are still requiring a degree still, as you said uh, said earlier. So that's one area. Um, but also, yes, how people use AI. I mean, obviously, this is so new, and it's so easy for us to jump on bandwagons. So we have to be careful. But uh, both anecdotally and through this report, more and more employers are at least going to ask graduates, how do you use AI? What have you done with it? that helped you at uni or helped you do this thing in, in your in your side project. Um, because we are all aware that the potential for this is immense and people that can use this new tool well 
are going to be at a fantastic premium because they're basically going to be able to do the job of between you know three and ten people if they if they can use the tool well. So this is a new kid on the block. Honestly, it's even challenging for us, and we're very, very cutting edge. <laughs> but yeah, I think uh, we're all going to have to think how do we educate our students to use this new tool really well. And in terms of of the university itself, how important is the London factor? Um, I mean, I, I went to music college in London. I love did it you, as a city. Did you? Where did you go? I, I was at Trinity when it was. Um, oh, in, I went to in, Guildhall. I went to oh. Guildhall back in the eighties. I was slightly after that. I was in. I was. I was in the nineties when it was still when it was still at Mandeville Place, just off Oxford Street. Good place, yeah. Um, so I had a fantastic time, but yeah, but I mean, as as a city, as a cultural place, as a as a as a city of thinkers, you know, is is that a big factor of of what you're able to offer? Do you think? Yeah, so we certainly try to do quite a lot of experiential learning. Um, yeah, just to give you two quite good concrete examples, we do quite a lot with local organisations on sustainability, actually in our curriculum. So as I mentioned, we're problem based learning. We focus on a, on a problem, and that. F- out of that grows everything around the curriculum each term. Uh, and so in Tower Hamlets, where we're based, we do things with local, the local council around waste management and with local industries, sometimes startups, and they could be doing any, anything from uh, making popcorn, uh, trying to do it very sustainably, to uh, a brewery, uh, those kinds of things. So we have those guys coming into our curriculum, and our students will produce a consultancy report based on uh, the needs or interests of, of the local council or, or that local organization. Um, and then we do stuff on urbanism. So I have an urban futures problems module where the students will go around many parts of London and experience um, new developments, uh, traditional spaces, spaces which frankly aren't working so well. Um, so yeah, they get a good feel for urbanism and regeneration. And you know, like it or not, because it is a contentious issue, the world is becoming more and more a connection of cities with vast rural spaces in between. Um, cities are growing faster than ever. There are now, as you know, possibly going to be mega cities in the next decades or so, 100 million people. And um, so urbanism, in its widest sense, is a, is a huge thing for how we live as people, as nations, um, as cultures, and so on. So uh, London is an amazing city. <laughs> so we have lots of opportunity to explore uh, where that goes, really, and students use London as a kind of lab on, on that module. And and you mentioned Guildhall there. What, what did you what, what what did what did you study, and how did you sort of how did that sort of get into the, into your sort of professional world beyond that? As you say? I think we need a whole separate podcast for this, Mark. What 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 did you study before I overshare? Um, so I'm I'm a percussionist, I'm drum oh. percussionist. So that's kind oh. of my my background. That was my second study. So. Um, I'm a kit player uh, back in the day, but I wasn't ever good enough at counting to play with an orchestra. Um, so I went to the Guildhall as a pianist, um, and I was okay, but I started very late on the piano, so my technique was not great, and you're, you know, the level of technique these days is off the charts. So I was always going to struggle to be a concert pianist. Um, but while I was there, they discovered, in quotes, my voice. I was actually a, a guinea pig student for a first study singer to learn how to teach singing. And he took me along to his singing teacher, who was the head of singing at the Guildhall, sorry, all these singing words. And she said, gosh, you, you've got an interesting voice there. What, what, what have you done as a singer? And I said, no, I can't sing because I've got such a low voice. It just drones on in the background. <laughs> they always tell me to shut up. She said, no, no, that's a bass voice. That's an operatic bass voice. I said, oh, really? She said, yeah, just sing how you feel comfortable. And so I did. And it was like a fifth below 
everyone else was singing. <laughs> and she said, that's amazing. It's so rare to have a voice like that, particularly in this country. Blah, blah, blah. Anyway, she took me on. And um, yeah, long story short, um, singing wasn't for me, but that's my fault, not singing's fault. <laughs> um, I, I did have a short career as a singer. I ended up going to the National Opera Studio in my in my early 30s, I think, in the, in the very late 90s or early 1000s. Um, and I, so I had a short career as a singer. I, I sung some of the smaller uh, country operas, some solo roles that I understudied at the Welsh once. But uh, I love really hard sort of intellectual problem solving. That's where I feel really happy. And there is definitely a type of problem solving in singing, but it's not the type where I felt very fulfilled. So it was a bit of a fish out of water, really. And um, then it's complicated as life is, but yeah. there came an opportunity for me to join um, UCL um, teaching physics about 20, 20 years ago now. So I jumped away from singing and I never, never missed it, actually. I don't know what you feel about music, whether you're still active, because sometimes people just move on. But singing was fascinating for me in many ways, and I still love dipping in and out of it to listen and talk to singers. My wife's a singer. But I don't miss the career or even performing actually at all. So yeah, yeah it's, it's it's interesting. I mean, I I still do perform and right. sort of, and with that, obviously, most of the people who perform also do some um, teaching and that as well, which kind of got me into the education space and and the right. the way people learn and and how uh, sort of individual teaching and group teaching of music in schools and how that relates to mm. how they actually learn as opposed to like I say the system and the classrooms and and all of that sort of stuff, which is kind of a combination of that and what I was seeing in schools and the fact that my kids were going through schools and sort of hearing what the schools were saying education was about compared to their experience of what they were having. <laughs> Hence the right. podcast. So let's have conversations with people that are actually doing something which is, is different. So uh, yeah, that's so I still sort of juggle all of those balls um, and uh, yeah, find it fascinating. But it's interesting, like I say, the way these things sort of come about and, and how they sort of take a different tack. Yeah, do you think there are different types of teaching which are needed, whether you're teaching music, maths, dance literature or do you think there are a few universals in there i think there are a few universals i think the difference for me is the fact that especially teaching one-to-one um the most important thing i've i come across is that when children are young they're sort of free and just going for it as they start to get later in primary certainly into secondary they just don't want to fail they they think they should be able to do it they think there should be no rigor they think that if they ask a question that's a bad thing um they don't quite understand the overall concepts of what we're trying to do and i find that when they get it they feel like a, a sort of a weight's been released because they suddenly realize well of course that's the case because why would you be able to do this without anything else and when they understand how it relates maybe to their football or playing games and how they learn naturally they kind of get it the the biggest problem is the fact that they might see me for half an hour a week mm. um and so they have this sort of microcosm of kind of oh yeah this is fine but then you then go back into the norm which is a class of however many and it has to look like this and it has to look like that and so it, it's that sort of tug and um pull of 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 what it's about from an actual learning and an actually sort of a well-being perspective and an understanding of who you are and having that time to be able to say yeah no this does work for me i know it might not work for everyone else but I can understand how that does. And we often have sort of conversations about how they then apply that to other subjects or other parts mm. of their life. Mm. And I say, that's the thing you just need to remember, you know, and it's really hard when you're in school from whatever, eight somethings or three something, or even later, depending on your school, being told lots of other different things. But I think they understand when they experience it that, yes, this is what 
it is for me, whatever that happens to be. And it is slightly different for each person. Um, I think but, you've yeah. touched on something so important there is about, is about the individual aspect. And honestly, I haven't cracked this one, that kind of idea of how you scale that quality interaction with one person to, to many people. I think, yeah, I think that is a universal, that if you have that one-on-one with somebody, some educator in your life, that is absolutely huge. And the contrast with that between being in a class of 30, 35, 60, 300 at university, it's just, it's chalk and cheese. Um, and yeah, it's it's almost literally impossible to understand how to scale that quality interaction. It's because you, how do you look 300 people in the eye and say, I hear you and I see you and I think you'd be good at this or I really liked it when you do that. Um, yeah, so that's one of the great conundrums of education. I think yeah. it's how to, how to give every student just those individual moments. You don't need millions of them, but you need enough to really make an impact. Yeah, and I think that's why I'm excited about what you're doing because, you know, easier when you're you know in your late teens or early 20s doing it because you're obviously more mature and you've got a whole skill set you don't have when you're younger but part of the problem is the fact that schools are set up that you don't have that ability to kind of have that freedom of course it's going to look different in some ways or another but there is no reason in this day and age while you all have to sit down and learn the exact same maths at the same time with everybody else because we know that's not the case so I think the, the sort of the things that you're setting up there which could be sort of reverse engineered into the sort of earlier in, in the education system could actually work because we have the tools and the understanding that you can, you know, there's a certain amount of person personalised kind of skills that you need to learn and that might be more hands-on when you're younger. But once you're kind of set up with that, you can go away and practice it in that same sort of game scenario. It's like you can play this game and you'll play it for hours because you know that you'll learn and you'll fail and you'll try it and you'll get better and get better. And what that does is I think it changes the system where the teacher becomes much more of a mentor, much more of a supporter of people's learning, um, which gives them more time that, like say, they can have those individual snippets and the other people aren't just left not knowing what to do. They've got a setup where they can actually do that. And I think, like I said, the big conundrum is, is there a school or a selection of schools or a government that says, yeah, we can probably see that working. Mm-hmm. But yeah. are yeah. we going to do anything about it? Yeah, I don't know. And I don't like to judge teachers. I think teachers have an incredibly difficult time. Uh, <laughs> you know, really, they work harder than virtually anybody I, I know. Um, so, yeah, particularly with adolescence. Adolescence is a fascinating time, but it's a difficult time for the person and for managing it. So the, the default has been to, like, yeah, corral adolescence to, because it's difficult, <laughs> make them all do the same thing, military style. Let's get through this, and at the end we'll see what happens. Whereas, as you say, it's, that's clearly not ideal, but I see why it happens. The flip side, have a mentor, have, academ- uh, have, have, have um, adolescence start early on to think, who am I? How am I accountable to myself? Is it acceptable to, for me to say I'm going to do something and then not do it? All these kinds of very mm-hmm. basic life skills, which we learn, we all learn when we're young. But if we could have an education system which did that, um, and so you were driving your own education system, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? I mean, that just feels like it would be amazing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and and, uh, and it, it makes you wonder whether it is possible and whether we'll get there by default or because the, the world has to look like that for whatever reason. It'll be interesting to see how it develops. But hence the reason I love these conversations because it just opens that door to the possibilities and people's I mean, little brains. I, I certainly wish I had it, right? I think we all do. We all have those one or two mentors. It literally might have been 20 minutes you saw them one term. And you just think, wow, if I'd had that in this subject or that subject or this time or that time, things 
feel like they could have been very different. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. Because again, you were a kid, right? We were kids and we were doing all that stupid stuff. And yep. maybe we would still have done a bunch of stupid stuff. Yep. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I mean, is there, is there a sort of a school experience or a teacher that, that you remember that sort of, sort of links into this? Or? Yeah, I was thinking about that. So I went to fairly normal state schools, um, but I was very lucky in my middle school. I had Philip Pullman, the novelist, as my English teacher. Oh, um, I used was, to work with his son in an opera company. Oh, did you? Right. <laughs> okay, right. Yeah, and he was as amazing as you'd think, right? So we, he was just inspirational. He was very demanding, so that was interesting. He, it was creative stuff. He taught creative writing, basically, or English literature to young kids. But he really asked a lot of us, and sometimes he was pretty ferocious and fierce if we did silly work, things he didn't think were good enough. So that interesting combination, being very creative and asking us to be... Um, uh, open and generate our own ideas, but also very tough if the ideas weren't very good. I thought that was interesting. And then at my um, at my secondary school, I um, had a, a northern bloke, I think he'd been teaching grammar schools, and um, he came down, I think he just thought we were a bunch of middle-class whingers, to be honest, because um, <laughs> it was a state school, but it was a, in a very nice part of town, North Oxford, so lots of kids of academics. Um, and, you know, he was probably right. We probably were a bunch of middle-class whingers. So I think that was my first, talking about sort of accountability and thinking, you know, st- stop complaining, do it yourself, work it out, don't blame others. I think he was the first teacher I had that really made me look at myself in that way. Um, and I'd done very, very little work uh, in the first year of sixth form, failed all my mocks. And he sort of looked me in the eye kind of bluntly, and didn't even, I don't know if you even said it, but the, the implication was pull your finger out and stop whinging. And I did. And I, I got down, worked really hard. And then he was really supportive. I'd do masses of extra work. I'd take him the past papers I worked through. I'd take it to him and just very calmly, he wouldn't particularly praise me or anything. He'd work through it, tick, cross, and look at me and say, well done, go on, do another one, you know. So that kind of slightly tough love thing, um, I think, I don't know if you're still around, Mr. Swinsco, but if you ever hear this, I do think of you and uh, sometimes your, your attitude, which I think was a healthy one for us. Yeah, I love that. And um, is there a piece of advice you've been given which you'd like to share, or even a piece of advice you give your lo- your younger self now? And, and I do take what you said, it comes up a lot. It's that kind of when you're younger, whether you would take it or understand it. But if you never hear it, mm. then I guess you never know about it. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, yeah, I think, I think for me, but this is different for everyone, slow down a bit. Slow down your kind of uh, reactions, knee-jerk uh, approach, me but that's because I, I think I think I've never been officially I think I'm very ADHD I've never been officially diagnosed so that's everywhere now it's a positive cliche but given my behavior at school the fact that I was constantly falling off the back of chairs constantly biting through pens with ink going all over my face all that stuff uh, constantly in trouble basically I think I was pretty ADHD uh, and I think learning to slow down to take a breath to try to focus again that's a terrible problem for today's kids because of social media I mean a historically bad problem now because we've never had this distraction but learning to slow down and concentrate um, I think and it was sorry to say who it was it was actually a counsellor it was a counsellor I went to see at the Guildhall School of Music when I was um, yeah not happy uh, with my studies and she said your mind is just going all over the place you know can you find a way just to focus it for a while and I didn't really know what she meant but I knew why I felt so kind of disturbed inside and I think that must be happening a lot to people today, to young people, and they probably don't even know it's a thing because their whole lives they've been distracted. Um, but that was that was um, that was an important intervention for me. 
Yeah, and I think that awareness is so key, isn't it? Because it's so people seem to think it's really important. I need I need to be diagnosed, or I need a label, or I need this, or I need mm. that. But actually, just knowing that you are who you are and what yeah. you can do to live your best life yeah. is actually kind of all you need. Certainly to begin 100%, with, hundred percent, hundred percent. I don't like the labeling going on now because I think they're often limiting labels. I mean, if it really is helping you, exactly as you say, be your best, really achieve. Actually, great. But too often I see it as a limiting label. I can't do this or I have to do it that way. Everybody can do things every way. Yes, some things are harder for us and, and, and other things than others. But everybody can actually do everything to some extent. And it's much more about, as you say, self-knowledge and self-accountability, actually, than, than a label. Yeah, definitely. And... Is there a resource you'd like to share? And this could be personal or professional, anything from a video, song, film, book, podcast. <laughs> but yeah, something which has had a bit of an impact. <laughs> yeah, so I'm obviously I'm older than a lot of your listeners. So I did love books back in the day before we had the internet. I used to read a lot. Now I don't read anything except X or Twitter, unfortunately. <laughs> That's very bad, kids. Don't be like me. Read books. Um, so early as a young person, I loved Herman Hesse. I read uh, Siddhartha and Steppenwolf and all those. And I love the Russian novelists. Um, I think up to coming more up to date, I do like some of the kind of modern wisdom type podcasts, the um, Chris Williamson, uh, Andrew Huberman, the stuff on health, maybe that's for slightly older, older listeners. And I, I love David Goggins, I have to say, I don't know if you know David <laughs> Goggins, uh, perhaps he's a bit macho, though I think he does have a very, very strong female following as well, actually. And of course, he's too hardcore for any of us to actually live, but to take a little bit of Goggins particularly in the physical world, actually, more perhaps more than the mental world, his thing about when you think you're dead, you're at your 40%, I think is sometimes a good, a good corrective for us feeling too, you know, that we, we can't cope and we can't carry on and everything's too hard. I think he's an amazing, amazing individual. Obviously, you can't try and be like him, but he's, there's a pathology a bit in what he does. But to take 10% of him, I think, is healthy for, for your life. So I haven't watched him for a while, but uh, in lockdown, I got into triathlon. Right. And Goggins was my mentor. And he definitely changed my life. I think he's an extraordinary individual and a wonderful individual. Yeah, amazing. And we'll have links to all those sorts of things in the show notes as well, so people can click through if they've not come across it before or, or want to check out any more details. Um, and, and just finally... The acronym FIRE is really important for us here at Education on Fire. And by that, we mean feedback, inspiration, resilience, and empowerment. What is it that just suddenly strikes you when you hear that? A lot. <laughs> Those are big words. I think if you do well in all of them, you're really flying in life. You'll be a turbocharged person. Um, but I think learning to take feedback is immense. It it goes a little bit with that youth thing and not being too reactive. I can think of some one key moment in my life, actually, when I overreacted to something my granddad said about education, uh, and I wish I hadn't reacted to that because then I then stuck to my own side of the argument, which was the wrong side. I should have listened to my granddad more. <laughs> so I think learning to take feedback, uh, kind of gently absorb it and live with it and not have your ego too much bound up in it is absolutely huge. Still wrestle with that today. Even when I get feedback from my people I manage, I wrestle with hearing negative feedback and I know I've got to sit, absorb it and sleep on it. Um, inspiration, find somebody that inspires you. I think that's an easier one. 
Resilience is, is really tough. I think it's fantastic if you can do a sport or play a musical instrument because I can't think of two better things to learn resilience. You cannot achieve in those things without going back again and again and again, failing and failing and failing, plateauing, thinking you're getting nowhere for sometimes months or maybe even a year or two, and then going again and thinking, wow, look where I am now. So if you can take up something which requires long, steady dedication, that teaches you resilience. I think that's great. And empowerment... I think it's actually quite hard for young people to feel empowered. Um, I'm not one of these people actually that says, oh, you know, childhood is the best days of your life. Because I think you, you don't have voice. People don't tend to listen to you very much when you're young. They hear you shouting. and You don't have much agency. You can't do very much. And those are the things often which make you happy in life. If you think when you speak, people listen to you and hear you and respect you. And when you can actually do something about it as well. So... Those things, I think, are part of being empowered is having voice and agency. So part of my message to young people is hang in there. You know, keep learning, keep learning, keep humble, keep learning, because it gets better. It gets better uh, because you will have more agency and you will have more voice if you keep learning and if you keep open to new ideas and build healthy relationships and strong networks professionally and personally. Your voice and your agency will grow and that will help you feel more empowered and more happy. Yeah, and I think that's really important. I think it's a really great thing to finish off on because what it enables us to do is it also opens up that idea of how you spend your time and who you spend it with. And I think yeah. that having a rich life where you have different generations, you spend time with family, like you know, that historically your family would have been more locally related to you and closer to you. And, and like I say, across those different generations, I think is really important. So like I say, the sport, the music, for example, it might be you're involved in it in an organisation that has lots of different age groups within it and, and coaches and like I say, teachers or whatever. And so you get the chance to do that. So I think the more you can set yourself up to do that rather than just being like say one of 30 in your class and then spending the rest of the time on social media is probably going to make <laughs> some kind of better in that kind of, sort of generic broadest sort of sense as it were so amazing Carl thank you so much indeed it's been a fascinating conversation and like I said I think there's probably another half a dozen podcasts we can do on various uh, different ways but do just make sure everyone knows where they can find out more about you and of course the school. Yeah thanks so uh, we are the London Interdisciplinary School so you can find us on, on the internet. Uh, that's our URL. Uh, we're also on X or Twitter and on Instagram. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, Carl Gombrich on LinkedIn. It's actually, I think I'm the only Carl Gombrich on the planet, as far as I know. <laughs> wow. It's a bit of a weird name. <laughs> so I'm Googleable. Somebody even did a Wikipedia page of me. One of my students did a Wikipedia page of me without my knowing. There's another podcast about that, Mark, it's very interesting. I was like, oh, what's this? Came from nowhere. And it's uh, funnily enough, though, people now think I'm really kind of respectable and famous because I've got a Wikipedia page. I was the same person two weeks before my Wikipedia page happened. That, that shows you how weird the world of knowledge is these days. But, yeah, so you can find me on Wikipedia as well if you're interested. <laughs> Fantastic. Carl, thank you so much, indeed. Have a great day. And, and I really keep up the great work and, uh, yeah, keep inspiring and, and, and leading by example. Thanks very much. Enjoyed it. Thank you for listening and being part of this wonderful community. With over 300 episodes, I've collated 20 resources from guests that have been on the show to help you in your educational journey and those of you involved with young people. Just go to educationonfire.com and you can sign up on the homepage. Thanks for listening to the Education on Fire podcast. For more information of each episode and to get in touch, go to educationonfire.com. Education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire.